Greetings, friends. It's a great blessing for me to be with you and to bring you the gospel of God's grace. We are preaching through Romans verse by verse, and I'm excited to bring you a message today that I trust will help you understand what righteousness truly is. We are in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to preach from verse 9 onwards up to verse 31. And we're going to explain what it means when the Bible says, Now the righteousness of God is revealed without the works of the law. We're going to define righteousness as a term prior to the existence of the law. Righteousness as what it would be in God's relationship with Adam or as what righteousness would have been defined as in the Godhead before the world was created. That would be the true definition of righteousness. And it will help us to understand what Paul is saying in Romans. Let us uh, just pray together before we start, before we go into the Word. Father, I want to thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I want to thank you for your kindness. I want to thank you that you empower me to preach your gospel boldly today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Before I get into the Word, I want to welcome all our viewers. It is wonderful to have you here and have you join in our webcast today. The purpose of this web church is to create a place where people can meet one another, people that are like-minded. They don't have a local grace-based church where they can fellowship. It also serves as a place where people can receive teaching as pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My ministry is focused on teaching, and I want people to understand. There's a passion in my heart for people to understand what Paul was saying when he was writing, to understand what the writers of the books of the Bible had in mind when they were writing and what God's Spirit is bringing to all of us through the writings of the Bible. And we all know that the writings of the Bible is all found in what God wanted to say to man from the beginning, which was that he was giving us the promise of eternal life. Glory to God. So uh, to all folks that have just slotted in for the first time. I trust that you will be comfortable and enjoy the message that I have today. Prepare yourself to, uh, to have an in-depth teaching. The Sunday services is geared towards in-depth teaching. Glory to God. Now, in today's message, I'm going to answer four questions. And I've put these four questions on my Facebook page earlier this week. And the questions are these. What is the righteousness of God? How do we define righteousness? There's a question too. How do we define righteousness before the giving of the law? How do we measure it? Why would faith be counted for the imputation of righteousness? Why is faith needed for the imputation of righteousness? We want to understand the logic behind it. And what is unrighteousness before the law and why? Now, as an introduction, I want you to know that the Bible is a very old book. It's very old writings. It would just be a frivolous exercise to try and read the Bible inside our culture today. Although the message of the Bible is for all cultures and for all people groups, it would be absolute foolishness to go and read the Bible from our perspective or inside our logic, thinking that Paul had uh, the American mindset in mind when he was writing his letter to the Romans, thinking that the writer of Genesis had the South African system wherein we have uh, 11 nations 11 different languages. We've got the apartheid system and all of that mixed in with uh, all kind of ideologies that he had that in mind when he was writing to the people of his time. He didn't know about us. He didn't know that the world will be what it is today when he wrote. He hadn't, didn't have any of that in mind. We need to understand that. I mean, if we just go and look at Shakespeare, which lived, uh, which was born in 1556, I think it's 1556, died in uh, 1614, 
I mean, that is just a few hundred years ago. And we look at, look at his plays that he wrote. I think he wrote um, about 35, 30, 38 plays. And if we go and look at that, and we look at how people analyze that and teach that in schools and universities and all of that, and how they still today look at what Shakespeare wrote and find it impossible to understand without going into the realities of Shakespeare in his time, uh, how much more for a document that was written 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, think of that. Uh, that makes uh, Shakespeare new, and yet we find it difficult to understand what Shakespeare was saying outside of adopting or going into that culture and leaving our culture behind. It would simply be impossible. Imagine the um, people that were under the Mesopotamian, Babylonian kind of an influence for thousands of years from about 4,000 before Christ until about 300 before Christ in the time of the Hellenization with Alexander the Great when he came and where the world was basically Greekified and then taken over by Rome where there was a mixture of different cultures placed into one big bowl with that mindset there if we today want to use our mindset to understand that I want to tell you it's going to be very difficult and bordering to impossibility. We have to adapt and see what those people have seen. You know, culture is not described in our writings. We don't talk about our culture when we write. We write inside our culture. Um, we can try to analyze and say our culture is this and our culture is that, which would, which ev would, which would even be a very difficult thing to do. For us to see our own culture is as difficult as what it is for a goldfish to define water. He lives in the water. His actions is in the water. And when we who are outside of the water behold the actions of the goldfish, we can say that this goldfish is swimming in water. This goldfish must be thinking this or thinking that. In the very same way, uh, for us, to try and understand what Paul was writing in Romans, what the writers of Genesis and Exodus and so forth was writing and thinking from within our sphere is just ludicrous. We have to go back and see what they were thinking, what was normal to them. When Paul was writing and he would use the word righteousness, it might have had a completely different meaning than what we would have today. The word righteousness uh, to Adam might have meant something completely different to what it would have meant to Moses and what it would have meant to Paul and what it would have meant to God prior to the creation of the world. Now, you might say, Barty, that makes it very difficult to understand the gospel. Let me put it this way. We don't need to understand other cultures in order to understand the gospel. But if you want to understand Romans, you need to understand the culture. Let me say it again. You don't need to understand history and cultures or none of those things. You don't need to understand context, none of that, in order to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is simply this. God has promised you eternal life. He raised the man from the dead who is now ruling and he will give it to you freely. Just believe him. And as you believe this, you find that he starts to bring life to you. That's all that there is to it. It's nothing more. That's the depths of the gospel. But to find that simple message in the writing of Genesis, to find that simple message in the creation story, to find that simple message in Adam's story, to find that simple message in the exodus of the, the, the people, the Israelites, uh, to find that simple story in Isaiah 
and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, you have to look at their realities to see that story. And if we are scholars of the scriptures and we want to study the Bible, we have to come to a place where we realize that it is um, <laughs> that these people that wrote these things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that they wrote from certain understandings which might not be our understanding. And under, uh, uh, the concept of righteousness for a liberal in America or in Europe is completely different than the concept of righteousness for uh, a Muslim in Saudi Arabia. And just in our world, if we write the word righteousness today and read it in, let's say, 4,000 years from now, it would, those people would have to consider our culture and what we are in and leave what they are in to understand what we have meant so that it can be applicable to them. Okay, I, have to, I just have to say that because, um, and I want you to know that it is not needed to understand all these things, to know the gospel. So I don't want to make it complicated. It's very easy. The gospel is that God, that there was a man, Jesus, that God promised eternal life. He brought forth a man that conquered death and he will now bring forth eternal life for whosoever believes on him. That is it. That is how simple it is. And we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by God keeping his promise. Now, with that in mind, let us go to uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to go through a little bit of the, of the history here. Romans chapter 3, um, and let us read verse 9. It says here, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no way. For we have before proven both Jew and Gentile that they are under sin. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, that and this is what he wants to do we need to understand the culture wherein paul was paul was in a culture where human flesh meant a lot it would be the same as what uh, it would be in a very staunch jewish background today wherein everything is about the flesh everything is about the human body wherein there would be the flesh of the Gentiles and the flesh of the Jews. That's the culture from where Paul is writing. That is logic to him and to everybody in that time from the perspective of the Jews. And uh, the, uh, that was preached to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were also then very fleshly minded. Fleshly minded meaning of what people group are you? Are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? Then the Jews, and we need to understand this, they thought that they would inherit the kingdom because of their Jewish flesh. They thought that the, the kingdom belonged to Israelites. That's very important. If you don't understand that, you cannot read Romans. You will not understand what Paul was saying. You will read Romans 3, you will not know what he's saying. You'll read Romans 1, you will not know what he's saying. Although you might know the gospel. The gospel is that God gave his son, that he died, that he rose again, and through him you have eternal life by simply believing upon him, having the hope of the resurrection. If you believe that, you're fine. But knowing that is good unto salvation. But that is not good and to knowing what Paul was writing. You need to understand the history here. So Paul, uh, he was trying to correct people that were thinking that the kingdom of God belongs to, to flesh, to a certain group that in their flesh were Israelites to whom God gave the law. He tries to break down flesh in his writing. He starts in chapter 1, and he basically says that whosoever believes shall be saved, and whosoever believes will basically then inherit the kingdom of God. That is what he is saying. 
And then in verse 18, he goes and he defines that all kinds of flesh, be it Jewish flesh or Gentile flesh, are sold under sin. And what he does from verse 18 onwards is he uses Adam and Eve and he basically explains that God has come and shown the truth to certain people, but these people became wise in their own eyes and in unrighteousness or in doing the wrong thing, they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness and then from their flesh, sins started to manifest, showing then that from Adam, all people groups or all people have sin in the flesh. That from Adam onwards, we find that there's nobody in their flesh righteous. And then he goes into chapter 2, and he then explains to the Jewish people that they shouldn't think that they are exempt from these people groups because they have the law and judge others as sinners because they themselves cannot keep the law and dishonors God as the other Gentiles does. And the same fruit of death, that's in all people groups, is also found inside the Jewish people. Meaning that their flesh is as unrighteous unto salvation as what the, the flesh of all people groups are. And then he comes in verse 9 here and he says, Are we then better than they? He says, In no way. We have concluded that all people are under the power of sin and then verse 10 says as it is written there is no one righteous no not one so what is he saying he is saying that all people are under the bondage of sin and death all people are sold out under sin meaning they are slaves of sin that they cannot by their own power attain unto uh, eternal life. That is what he's saying. And then he connects that with righteousness. He says they are all unrighteous. There's no one righteous, no, not one. There is not one that understands. There's not one that seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have all become unprofitable, meaning that their doctrine and what they teach and what they try to do, um, th that it's not good unto eternal life that their throat is an open grave, meaning their doctrine they teach just speaks of death and cannot bring life. It says here that their with a tongue they've used deceit. Paul is now referring back to Adam and Eve, where the devil has come and deceived them. How did he deceive them? He told them, listen, you can buy your own power by standing in the solitude of yourself. You can have eternal life. God is lying. You will not surely die. There is no reason for death in your flesh. Your flesh is okay. From your flesh, you can have eternal life. That is what he's teaching him, what, what the devil was doing. They were, he was deceiving Adam and Eve. He says they use, use deceit. Paul even comes and he says sin in the flesh has also now deceived him. In Romans 7, we will look at that a bit later. He says the poison of snakes is under their lips. Why is he using that language? He's referring back to Adam and Eve. He's, he's referring back to the message that says what happened to Adam and Eve and what true about them is true about all people and that there's no one righteous in his own flesh. No one can stand by the power of himself. No one can by his own good works produce eternal life. Not a Jew and not a Gentile. There is no person. They are all in the same boat as what Adam was. They are all at a place where as Adam had to believe upon God and trust God so that God can give him eternal life in the very same way we today have to trust and rely upon God. Be you a Jew or a Gentile, you have to rely upon God for salvation and nothing else. Okay, then we go on to verse uh, 19. It says, um, it says then in verse 19, Now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the world may become guilty or under the judgment of God before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law 
is the experiential knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Now let me explain what he's saying here. The Jewish people, and this is my conclusion, I didn't read it in a book, but this is as I read the scripture what I see. The Jews, and what Paul is addressing here is, the Jews thought that because of their flesh, they are exempt from the uh, wrath of God that was, according to them, described for those people that are non-Jews. But then the law was given to the Jewish people. And the purpose of the law for the Jewish people was that the Jews could also see that in their flesh dwells nothing good. That was the purpose. The law was not given that the Gentiles might see that they have got sin in the flesh. The law was given to the Jews. To who was the law given? To the Jews. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was that the Jews might see that their flesh is sinful. Why? Because they didn't think that their flesh is sinful. They thought that their flesh is righteous unto eternal life. They thought that because they were Jews in the flesh, that gave them the right to inherit the kingdom. We even find that question in Acts after the resurrection. At the time of uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they asked, it's recorded in Acts, that about that time they said, when will you restore the kingdom back unto Israel? They were thinking they are righteous to inherit the kingdom and eternal life because of their Jewish flesh. Then since they've put their trust in their Jewish flesh, God gave them the law so that they could see we cannot keep the law. Oh my goodness, we never knew we were sinful in our flesh. But now that we're trying to keep the law, find that the sin that we have in the flesh, which God knew about, which we didn't know about, the unrighteousness in our flesh, which we thought we were righteous, is now manifesting through the law, showing that we are as much sinners as the Gentiles. <laughs> now I tell you, I have not heard people teach it like that, but I want you to consider that. The law was given to the Jews so that the Jews who think they are righteous in their flesh can see that their flesh has only got sin hidden in it or unrighteousness hidden in it or that their flesh is not sharing in what needs, what they need to share in in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Then it goes on and it says in verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, now we're getting into the teaching that I have for you today, wherein I'm going to start to answer the questions. Today, I'm sure we're going to preach an hour, maybe more, but uh, because there's a lot that I want to cover, and I want you to see uh, how Paul defines righteousness. When we look at what he was expressing in chapter 1 from verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 25 about, 20, yeah, 20, verse 20. From chapter 1, 18 until 3, verse 20. What he is basically saying is that man in his flesh could not attain unto eternal life. When man in the beginning became wise in his own eyes, did not believe that he was just a natural man. We're going to prove that from the scripture. When they did not believe that they were just a natural man, but they became wise in their own eyes, and they thought that from themselves they are wise unto life, they found that they were not. They found that in their flesh was nothing good unto eternal life. And that is defined as unrighteous. By verse 20, when the Bible says, now the righteousness of God or the condition wherein God is, whereby he can produce eternal life in us, is now made manifest without the law, showing, saying that God does not need our flesh to produce eternal life. He from himself is in the condition which can afford the bringing forth of life in us 
free from our works. That is what he is saying. Now, righteousness, I want to explain that today. Um, I've got two, let's say, props here. I've got a cup and I've got a, a pair of scissors. And I want to define righteousness by using this. Now, my question to you would be, is this cup righteous? Now, you would say, what are you asking? Now, if the word righteous, and you will see in the notes there, is defined as, um, according to Thayer definition, you can see on page two, in a broad sense, the state of him who is as he ought to be, righteous, the condition acceptable to God. Okay. He who is in the state as he ought to be. Now, if I ask, is this cup in the state that it ought to be? Obviously, we can say yes as pertaining to, um, this is a coffee mug, to keeping hot water and coffee or tea or whatever you want to put in this, in it. It can hold water. It's waterproof. It can keep water in it. It has been made for that. It's righteous unto that. But it is not very righteous when it comes to, or in the condition that it should be, um, when it comes to cutting paper. I mean, if I take this pair of scissors and I cut my notes here, I mean, it does a perfect job. But if I want to take some water and I want this to keep water and I pour water on it, it is in the condition that it should be or that it's supposed to be to keep water. It is righteous or as it's supposed to be unto cutting paper, not unto keeping water. In the same way, the cup, this cup cannot cut paper. I can try. I mean, I will ruin the paper. I will not cut it because it has not been designed for that. In the same way, Paul comes and he uses human flesh from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20. And he's saying that human flesh is not righteous unto eternal life. It doesn't have the ability in itself to produce it. And should you think that flesh is righteous to produce it, as what Adam thought, what happens? The law gets added to you so that you can experience your sin. Sin would then be defined as armatia. Let me see if I've got it in the notes here. I didn't put it in the notes. So look at the definition of sin. But the definition of sin, the literal definition of sin, it is combined out of two words. Not is the one word, and then the, the last word there is, or the second word is, to have what is allotted to you or to part, be a partaker of. It means not to partake of. So human flesh does not partake of the ability to produce eternal life. Human flesh is natural, it is of the earth, it is earthy. And should we define human flesh from the perspective of the ability to produce eternal life, we will find that as this scissor is not sinful, it is not bad, it has been made for a certain purpose. But should I define, if, if I want to define this, this scissor, or judge this scissor by its ability to keep water, I'm going to find that it is not partaking in the ability to keep water. Therefore, according to the judgment of are you righteous to keep water or as you ought to be to keep water, we're going to find it is unrighteous. And should we want to do it, should we want it to keep water, should I take some water and uh, uh, pour it on it, I'm going to find it is not keeping water. It is missing the mark. It's missing the goal completely. It is not doing it. It is wasting water. It's not keeping the water. It is what I would then call um, weak unto keeping water. And that we can also define as sin in the flesh. 
the inability of, of, of the scissor to keep water. In the same way, we can liken the human body's inability, not created by God, to produce eternal life, but to be the recipient of the life that God produces so that it can be a sharer in the glory of God or be the carrier of the very life of God so that that being can feel what it feels like to have the fullness of God's life. He necessarily had to be a being that cannot produce it by itself but can receive it. That is what it is. So, if man was made for the purpose of receiving eternal life and not producing eternal life, we can say man is holy just the way he is. He is good. He's good for receiving eternal life, but he's very bad for producing eternal life. So is man good? Depends on the question. It's like, I'm righteous. You know, in, in my, in, 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 I'm good in my wife's eyes. I, I mean, I'm a good guy. I'm a good man. But all men know, the moment your wife asks you, do I look fat? That moment you became a sinner. In that moment, you've already lost. You are unrighteous. You're not qualified to answer that question. You have not been designed to answer that question. It's not within your ability to answer that question. We will know that. And I mean, many are laughing when they hear that because it's humorous. But we have not been designed for that. As men, we have been designed to love on our wives, to provide for them financially, to care for them, to speak words of affirmation over them, to, 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 to share the gospel love with them, to, to be their husbands. That is what we are. In the very same way, they have been designed and it's natural for them to, to be one with us, to be a help for us, to assist us in sharing their life with us and we sharing their life with them, to be one and be a type and a shadow of what's true between Christ and us. So we as humans, and I want to define righteousness, righteousness now, the righteousness, the unrighteousness of man was revealed when man tried by his flesh to attain unto eternal life. This unrighteousness that was inside man was not a bad thing. It only becomes bad when we want to have life by our own works. The reason why I teach this and the reason why I share this with you is twofold. Number one, I believe it's Paul's logic wherein he wrote Romans. And if you go in through Romans, you need to understand that. And number two, I put an emphasis on that so that we can start to accept who and what we are and stop to walk in guilt and condemnation because we find mortality or weakness in our flesh or an inability to do good by our own power. Many of us think of ourselves as bad. We hate our bodies. We hate our flesh. We hate the fact that we are mortals. We, we detest that because we want to do good. We want to produce good. Listen, you were designed by God not to be able to produce good by your own power. And that God called Adam from the beginning. So, and, uh, um, you know, I've, I've got people then asking questions about this. So you would say, did God make man then a sinner? No, God did not make man a sinner. God made man a natural being that can only attain unto eternal life by God, granting it to him for free. God made man a being that does not produce, the, that does not have the ability to produce eternal life by himself. That's how he made man, and that good. But should that being say, I want to stand before God by my own power and I will be a God by my own power, then that very same good being would be defined as unrighteous by design. And we need to see that because Paul has got that mindset in Romans because he's trying to prove from Adam's flesh all the way through 
to Jew and Gentile that flesh by itself is not righteous unto eternal life. And now the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, meaning the condition as you ought to be to produce eternal life is now revealed from God to the man Jesus, and he produces the eternal life. And now when his righteousness is imputed to us is when we believe upon him for eternal life. When we believe upon him for eternal life, then his ability to produce life in us becomes our ability because we're relying upon him. So what is actually said is his ability to produce life is now used as the power whereby we will have life. And that is the imputation of righteousness. That means God is as he ought to be and I Trust him to be as he ought to be in me, according to the original design, which was that he gives us eternal life as a free gift. And now he starts to produce that. That's the imputation of righteousness, wherein his condition, wherein he can produce eternal life, is now applied to my life by me not using my flesh to produce it, but trusting in him. I hope you can see this. This is really very simple. It's very simple. God made a promise to mortal man. You might say, but Bertie was man mortal uh, before, the, the, before the fall. We're going to look at that now from Scripture, and I think Scripture is final authority to me. Was man mortal? Did man have the ability to die before he fell? before he ate of the wrong tree. We're going to look at Scripture, but let's first look at the promise. God promised man that you can have eternal life by me. He gave him access to the tree of life that he could go and eat of that tree. This, this man was not in the condition, he was not righteous unto eternal life by his own works. He was not made to produce that. His flesh had a weakness he could not produce that by himself. It is impossible. God promised him. What would be the right thing to do? What, if man was as he ought to be in the presence of this promise, what would, that, what would that look like? Very simple. Just believe God. Then this faith would be accounted to him as the condition wherein you ought to be to have eternal life manifest in you. So that is why righteousness for us is by faith. The condition God has to be in in order to produce eternal life, meaning the righteousness of God to produce eternal life, that condition is to be an eternal, immortal being without beginning, without end, which God is. So he's righteous to produce eternal life. We have a beginning. We cannot produce eternal life by ourselves. So we are not righteous unto eternal life. But how will we attain unto righteousness that we can have eternal life? We trust the one that has promised us. Then as we believe him, then our faith is accounted to us for righteousness. Why? Because we are now making use of his ability to produce eternal life in us and now our faith is accounted to us for that is how you ought to be in relation to the one who's righteous that can produce eternal life just believe that was true from the beginning it is then manifested as true in abraham and is manifested as true today as we believe upon the lord knowing that we in our in our flesh dwells nothing good as pertaining to producing eternal life yet in our flesh we are the temple of god we are holy our bodies are holy but our very bodies that are holy as a temple of god as the place where god must dwell unto eternal life is very unholy as pertaining to being of eternal life i hope you understand the language there now let us go to first corinthians 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read from verse 40. And I'm now 
going to address the question, was man in his flesh mortal before he ate of the wrong tree? Now, you will remember that the scripture says in Genesis that God blew the breath of life into man and man became a living soul. Then he told man to have authority and all those things. And then he also said to him, don't eat of the wrong tree. So man became a living soul prior to him eating of the wrong tree. Very important. Now, um, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 14. There are also celestial bodies and bodies of terrestrial, but glory, oh, sorry, verse um, 42. So is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So what is he saying? He's saying in the resurrection of the dead, our physical bodies today are sown in corruption. It means we are corruptible. We are decaying. We are dying. Okay, we are not eternal beings. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. So what is the normal human body that we have today? It is a body that can corrupt and die. It's a body that's got access to death. It is not incorruptible. It's a body of dishonor. It's a body um, of weakness. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. As it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam made a quickening spirit. Okay. So what is a living soul according to Paul? A living soul is a body that can die, that doesn't have the ability to live forever by itself. It's a body of dishonor. It's a body that carries weakness unto producing eternal life. It's a body that doesn't have the power to produce eternal life. It's called a natural body. It is called a living soul. Okay. So, we find that Adam, before his fall, in his body, didn't have eternal life. He had the promise of it, and by himself, he could not produce it. So, when Paul comes in Romans, it's about righteousness. As we look in verse um, 21 there, he comes and says, but now, the right." Righteousness, the condition wherein God is, whereby God produces life in us, is manifested without our fleshly contribution. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faithfulness of Christ, this is verse 22, upon all of them that believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us. Both And that all there doesn't talk about all individuals. That all there in the context of Romans is all, meaning two, either Jew or Gentile. Therefore, both Jew and Gentile are coming short of the glory of God. Where are they coming short of the glory of God? In their flesh. Why? Because when their flesh was put to the test to see if it can, eternal life we find both Jew and Gentile bringing forth sins and dying that is what he is saying now he says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ whom God set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare I say at this time his righteousness or his condition and ability to produce eternal life that he might be just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus whether they be Jew or Gentile. Okay. Now let me summarize everything that I'm saying. And, and, and see if we can, uh, we can wrap this up. There's still so much to say. You might say, Bertie, but this is a lot of information. 
Let me summarize it and put it all together. Number one, you don't need to understand any of these things in order to know the gospel of Jesus. But should you want to go through Romans verse by verse and you want to understand what Paul's logic was about righteousness, unrighteousness, the flesh, sin in the flesh, and so forth, you need to understand what I just shared. What I said is that man, even before the fall, had a weakness in his flesh. The weakness in his flesh was not wrong or an unacceptable condition before God. That is why it is not described as man was made a sinner by God. Although man was weak unto creating eternal life, it's called a natural body, it's called a corruptible body, it's called a weak body, it's called a body in which there is not the condition to produce eternal life, which I will show to you from Romans 7, believe is called sin in the flesh or not having a share in the life of God in the flesh by own ability, meaning we cannot measure up to God's ability to produce eternal life by ourselves. This is what it's all about. Now, God, God is the, the one that can produce eternal life. He made a man that could not produce eternal life because his plan has never been that man would produce eternal life. That's why man, in a state wherein he could not produce eternal life, is called good. And the point of this whole message is so that you can know today if you cannot produce good, my friend, that you are okay. You are okay. You are still in an acceptable condition before God. You are good. You are as you ought to be. Should you not be able to produce eternal life by yourself? Should you have weakness in your flesh that when you, by your own willpower, want to produce good, find that there's no good in you, that you cannot look at yourself and hate yourself, but that you can say, I need salvation from this dying body. I need Christ. For, the, for when I want to produce by my own power, I find that I cannot. Yet, the condition that I am in is not detestable in the sense of, oh God, I'm a bad person. No, you have not been made to function as a being that creates life by yourself. I don't know how to express that in, in, in clearer terms. This being, this condition, this condition is a good condition, but the moment this condition stands before God as a self-existing one, as a God by its own power, that condition is defined as unrighteous, sinful, bad, unto death, evil, and all those kind of things. Yet that very same body, under the condition where it doesn't stand in the power of itself, but believes in God, is called righteous, holy, the temple of God, blessed. So can you see how we need to redefine, or actually define righteousness in the light of what God has done, and how He has blessed us, and how He's been good to us? Amen. We have to do that. Let us go to Romans quickly. 7 and we just look at what Paul says there what Paul does in his writing he starts in he starts with Romans 1:18 and he basically i believe in his mind refers to Adam and Eve and how they brought destruction to the whole world then in chapter 2 he goes and he tells the Jews that they're not exempt from what happened in Adam and Eve that their flesh is just as bad unto eternal life as anybody else's flesh, and that we, ne we needed not to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but believed in God for eternal life. Then in the end of chapter 2, beginning chapter 3, he answers some difficult questions the average Jew would ask. Then he goes into chapter 3, verse 9, and he explains that, um, that both Jew and Gentile are the same. Then he goes into chapter 4, which we will go into not next week, the week after that, in chapter 4, and he basically explains that Abraham did not find according to the flesh. 
but that he believed God. And he takes this system that he's been bringing forth for three chapters and he's applying it now to Father Abraham, trying to convince the Jews that it wasn't the flesh of Abraham that was righteous, but the fact that he believed the righteous God because in his flesh was nothing good. Then he goes on into chapter 5, explaining verse 6 and verse to verse 10, he explains that while we were weak in our flesh, while we were sinners, he calls the weakness of the flesh sin. He calls walking in the weakness of the flesh, you are now a sinner. You've got the act of sinning by walking in the weakness of the flesh. He says, while we were in our weakness, Christ died for those who are not like God, which would be those that don't possess the ability to produce eternal life by themselves. To be ungodly means not to be like God. And Christ came for those who were standing in the ability of themselves that doesn't have the, the ability to produce eternal life by themselves. And he entered their death, conquered their death, and then produced a body which they can rely upon, which is the body of Jesus, so that they can have eternal life. That is what it is. Then he goes into chapter 7, Paul, and he now takes the whole logic that he was taking from chapter 1 and applies it to him personally. He takes what happened in Adam and applies it to him personally. And let's go and look at that. Romans 1. And we're going to end off with this. Uh, Romans 7, verse 9. I went to Romans 1, Romans 7, verse 9. It says, For I was alive without the law once. I think this talks about Adam, you know, like Adam. He was alive without finding, uh, without the law. When he was talking about the law, we need to understand that we cannot throw away the context from chapter 1 until chapter 6. We cannot throw away the context. The context is that the law was given to the Jew who put his confidence in his flesh, saying that in my flesh I've got whatever it needs to attain unto eternal life. He now takes that concept and he's saying, for I was alive without the law once. I was alive at a point in my time without putting my reliance upon the flesh. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When could the commandment come to Paul? This is how the Jews believed the law came to them. First, you had to be a Jew. That's it. Then you had to be circumcised. And then you had to put your confidence in that. Confidence that the kingdom will be yours by that. Then the law was given unto you. Okay? It says, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. So he thought, that I make my boast in the flesh, I trust that I am righteous unto eternal life by being a Jew, that I will inherit the kingdom because I'm a Jew. And then as he starts to do the law and thought that I'm righteous unto eternal life because of my flesh, and from my flesh I will have the ability to obey these laws and so have eternal life, I find that I cannot do it. So can you see how he's taking... I am alive, yet, although I am alive, there's some part of me that has not been designed to produce life. Okay, and the commandment which was ordained unto life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me. Can you see how he's using deception again? In Corinthians he says, don't be deceived as Eve was deceived. He's now saying that for sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So what he's saying is, the law is holy, but I, by my own ability, by my flesh, does not have the ability to keep the law. But the fleshly mind, meaning boasting in my flesh, I was deceived by thinking that my flesh, my flesh, my ability, my Jewish ability, deceived me the message that you as a jew can do the law deceived me and it slew the real me the inner man the mind that wanted life 
Wasn't that which was good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin might, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So Paul, in his flesh, did not have the ability to produce eternal life. But when he put his trust in his flesh, then the commandment showed him that his flesh has got a weakness about him. His flesh is not a co-partaker with God in the ability to produce eternal life. His flesh cannot hold water. Okay. For we know that the law is spiritual, but that I am carnal, sold under sin. Now carnal there talks fleshly, talks about what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says the first man was of the earth, earthy. It was of the earth, earthy, a natural man. And he comes here and he says that I find that my body is natural. I come to the same discovery as Adam. Adam thought that by his flesh he can live forever. But the moment he tried to implement the flesh, he discovered that his flesh does not know how to produce eternal life. And we're going to get to that verse now. For we know that the law is spiritual, but that I am carnal, sold under sin. Sold under sin, going back to chapter 3, verse 9, where he says both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Now he's explaining what it means to be under sin. To be under the inability of the flesh to produce eternal life. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do which I wish not, I consent unto unto the law, that it's good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now he explains what sin was that dwelled in him. For I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing, for to will is present. Now he explains what the sin in the flesh is. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. So what is sin in the flesh according to Paul? Not knowing how, the flesh not knowing how to produce eternal life. So I want to say to you, stop to ever think bad of yourself because of the scripture which talks about sin in the flesh. All that sin in the flesh means is that you are a natural man. It's natural, it's normal for any person, should he try to be saved by the works of the law, to, 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 to find the fruit of uh, a, a natural body in him, not knowing how to produce eternal life. So I conclude, and this is, this is the message that I, that, I, that I have for you. That the first man, Adam, was of the earth, earthy. And the last man is from heaven, talking about Christ returning, who's poured out his spirit, is one from heaven, heavenly, which will also quicken our mortal bodies. Let us therefore not trust in our own ability to keep rules and commandments unto life, but only believe on the resurrected Jesus. For we in our flesh has never been made for the purpose and designed by God to produce eternal life. We from the beginning were unrighteous when we would, be, we would measure ourselves with a measuring read of can you produce eternal life? We cannot. If we would measure ourselves from the first day God gave us the breath of life, we would measure and say in this man's flesh alone, just by the flesh, is not the knowledge on how to produce eternal life by itself. It is impossible. And Paul defines that, according to my reading of the scriptures, as sin in the flesh. Sin meaning not partaking or not having a share in. Flesh was not having a share in the ability to create eternal life. We were definitely in the condition where we can be the recipients of eternal life. That's why you can today, even if you've got weakness in the flesh, even if you define yourself as having sin in the flesh, you can, def you can look at yourself and say, I am loved, 
by God. I am as I ought to be. I'm believing Jesus, although I see in my flesh no good thing on how to perform what is good. Hallelujah. I want to thank you so much that you've watched this message. Uh, I trust that it's blessed you and helped you to understand what was in the mind of Paul. Next week, we will not be having a Sunday live stream because I will be in Brazil. I'll be preaching in Brazil. Should it be possible that there's a live stream, I will definitely stream it. But um, I will be preaching in Brazil, and then in two weeks, we will continue and jump right into Romans chapter 4. With what is in mind, what I've just preached to you, go back to Romans and read chapter 3, and you'll see it is all there. Thank you so much. God bless.